Now, welcome to the CatTunes podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Crowley. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the stories behind my songs, the production tools that I've used, the production methods that I've employed, the instruments that I've played, the instruments that I've discovered, the arrangement methods that I've used, the real-life stories which precipitated the creation of my entire albums or of my separate tracks. So let's jump right into it, shall we? And I'll welcome you listening to the Captain's podcast. This is episode 28, and I'm your host, Kat Crowley, and uh, today we're starting a series of episodes on the Overcome album, and that is because I made a poll, and I've asked people, and people voted for this album. This album won. There were other albums, but, 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 but. So, this is one of the albums that was on the list, and it turns out that I will be going through it first. So, without further ado, let's get into the the episode. So, Overcome. Overcome is one of these very strange albums that the writing, the creation of which stretched across the span of 13 years. Initially, and I've talked about this on, on uh, my YouTube videos, and I've mentioned it in my um, posts on social media, and perhaps even talked about it way back when I was still in the process of finalizing this album. Uh, originally, the first tracks for this album were written in 2006. It wasn't the first album that was that huge. I've had an album called um, The Countess Destiny, uh, which was a three-part, you could, you could say, yeah, three-CD sort of uh, enormous concept album which I made back in 2004 so and then there was Evolution none of these albums by the way are still released so it wasn't my first attempt to create something huge it was probably the last one <laughs> you could say so in 2006 um, I was going through a, a lot of turmoil because that was the year that my mom was getting increasingly sick um, I was still not taking hormones. I started taking them on December 14th, 2006, so that happened a little later. But that fall of 2006 was one of the darkest and one of the most depressing and difficult chapters in my whole life. So my mom was dying. Uh, my, uh, I was still living with my parents, and my father was, as usual, he was very very hateful of me, let's put it this way. Uh, we were in a con constant confrontation with him. And um, I quit my education for a while, for half a year, because I just couldn't handle everything. And I was uh, trying to be around mom and I was trying to help her. But I couldn't study at the same time because just the weight of this, of seeing my mom, um, 
just get worse and worse, not even knowing what is what is causing that. And that was very difficult. It was extremely difficult. It was very tough. And we were very close with my mom, so it was heartbreaking to see her just fade away, basically, and not being able to help at all. So that fall was a very difficult time on that front. It was devastatingly difficult, gut-wrenching. And on the other hand, I was at a point where I could not go on pretending to be someone else. I needed to start my transition. So at that point in 2006, uh, I've been already attending the doctors uh, in a clinic for like two years. And I was hoping that they would prescribe me hormones. I was hoping to do it, you know, the legal way. It didn't play out that way anyways. I ended up taking them myself. I just started my hormone treatment myself uh, later in December that year when I reached a breaking point. Um, that fall was so dark. It was so depressing. I... Where do I even start? I was suicidal. I didn't want to live. Not that I wanted to end myself, like, um, in a sort of teenage way, no. I was... I didn't feel motivated to live. At all. Because I could not continue to live, like, not myself. It was impossible. I didn't want to... I didn't want to be someone who... I was expected to be. I could not be that person. I did not want to pretend any longer. It was dragging on since I was a kid, and uh, that was too much. And my mom was dying at the same time, so it, that didn't make matters any better. It actually made things a lot worse. So I knew that I will not need any understanding from my family. Um, I felt devastated. I I was fading away because I thought in my mind I thought that. I need the permission of the doctors to get hormones, to, to get started, to first I need to get a diagnosis, etc, etc, and the doctor basically was trying to prescribe me heavy antidepressants. Heavy antidepressants. I've looked up those antidepressants and I found out that uh, they are very addictive. The doctor, it turned out, expected a bribe, and uh, neither did I have the money nor was I um, savvy in stuff like this, I never bribed anybody. I didn't understand how bribes work, so I was naive, and I was hoping that the doctor would help me, but instead of that, it was just payment after payment after payment of my own money, which was very hard to earn for me. I was um, just a few months before, and before I moved back to my parents' place, I was living with my friend and working as a babysitter, so I was sort of back and forth between my parents' place and um, babysitting. So I was earning some money from that, and some freelancing, and all of that money was going to that clinic, because for every freaking visit I had to pay, I had to pay cash. And then these guys basically try to prescribe me antidepressants, and I don't want to take them because I'm not an idiot, I look it up and I figure out that it's highly addictive, and then I talk to people on uh, various websites and forums, and I talk to someone who was taking exactly this pill. and. It turns out that you better don't get started with that pill. It's highly addictive. I don't remember the name of the pill, by the way. So, um, I was in dire straits. 
I was in dire straits. And um, I quit my um, studies temporarily. I talked at my music academy, I talked to the principal, I talked to the teachers, and they've allowed me. I've explained, I've explained that my mom is in a horrible condition and uh, she needs me, and I cannot attend the lectures, I need a break, at least until the end of the semester. And they said, okay, fine, because you know, I was a good student. So they let me go, and uh, I was staying at home with my parents, and I was enduring the attacks of my father, and um, I was trying to be of as much help as I possibly could to my mother. And at the same time, I was coping with uh, my internal issues because I just did not, I could not wait any longer. It was my life that didn't make any sense. The only, basically the only reason why I was going on with this lie and pretending to be a son um, was because of my mom. I felt like I couldn't break her heart and uh, for the longest time I couldn't just come out to her and tell her that, well, this is what it is. I couldn't talk about those things, I was too worried that that would devastate her. And now here she is dying and finally I find myself in a, between, you know, a rock and a hard place and it's, I, I myself feel like I'm about to die if I don't do something. Um, and so I've done some research and then later in December I started my hormones, but uh, those three months of that fall were horrible. The only thing that I could do, I would game occasionally, I was gaming that Lunage 2, I think, just to get my mind off of things. But for the most part, I was writing music, as usual. And the album that I started working on was Overcome. I sort of put it in the title because I... <laughs> it was like, uh, it's almost like throwing a flag all the way across the battlefield, you know, over there. And you're like, well, like it or not, you're gonna get to that flag. So you gotta get through the enemy, you know. That was my mindset when I was... Uh, when I came up with that title, so I said, Overcome. But at the same time, I was finding myself basically not wanting to wake up every day. I didn't want... I basically didn't eat. I weighed 80 pounds. I could count all of my ribs. My cheeks were gone. Um, I was living off coffee, mostly instant coffee and cigarettes. I used to sleep for like 21, 22 hours straight. I just didn't want to stop sleeping. I just kept falling asleep and falling asleep and falling asleep. And um, when I would not be asleep, I would not be asleep for like 42 hours, 48 hours, and I would be up and going and uh, doing music. I'm writing music at my computer, I would just, you know, carry my computer and reassemble it, uh, I would be, uh, in the night I would be sitting in the kitchen, you know, as far as possible for my father. Um, and um, at daytime, sometimes I would sit in the kitchen, sometimes I would move to the old nursery, and I would sit there. And um, the only other thing that I was doing, and that was taking all of my energy, for one hour every day, I was going for vocal practice, so I would go into the living room when mom would go to cook dinner. 
Uh, I would go to the living room, I would take a little tape recorder with me, an old broken tape recorder. It didn't have, um, it didn't have the door that, you know, closes the cassette. That's something that I had, and then I had uh, my computer, so I would uh, bring my computer later on. Um, I started to assemble my computer right on the sofa in the living room, and I would connect it, you know, to my speakers, to my dialogue speakers, and I would put them there and I would sing. And I was practicing mostly to Slipknot, to Slipknot, to Dream Theater, Korn, mostly these three bands. That's something that saw me through that major crisis. So by singing Dream Theater, I was trying to enhance my higher range, my clean tone. And by singing, well, screaming and growling, Slipknot and Korn, I was trying to... Uh, I, was, I was trying to learn screaming the best I could. And I needed songs to practice, so I was... I could scream an entire, you know, Slipknot self-titled album, or the Iowa album, or uh, Volume 3 Subliminal Verses, something like that. And uh, then I would, after that, I would sing an entire Dream Theater album. Uh, like Awake, for example, with uh, Voices and Six O'Clock in the Christmas Morning, these kind of songs. So I was going for that. And, you know, somewhere in between I was throwing in some Marilyn Manson tracks and some Radiohead and uh, even a little bit of Symphony X just for practice. I didn't really uh, like that band that much, but I was doing that. And Korn. Korn was a big one. Sometimes I was uh, mixing, singing an entire Slipknot album, mixing that up with singing an entire Garbage album. So I would train my highs and my clean tone with Shirley Manson, and then I would scream. Um, or first I would scream with Corey Taylor, and then I would sing with Shirley Manson. That's how I practiced. And uh, I would practice for one hour or, you know, more, if I'm lucky, while mom is cooking dinner in the living room and um, then I would um, then I would go and you know sort of sit there and I basically couldn't eat anything I would drink some milk uh, with honey that's what that's the fuel that I was running on all the time milk and honey and then quite often after that one hour of vocal practice ruthless crazy vocal practice because I was basically just throwing out my heart out of there you know all the emotions all the sadness, all the bitterness, all the hurt and pain that I felt inside, all of it, I could scream it out, I could sing. That was the only thing that kept me sane, basically. And then, after that hour of vocal practice, I would basically just, um, I would be close to collapsing, because I would throw out all of my energy, and uh, there would be nothing left. And quite often I would just, you know, uh, try to pick on some food, and mom wasn't happy about this because I was extremely thin. I was pale, I was thin, I lost a lot of weight, uh, and it wasn't getting any better. Simply because I did not eat, and I did not eat because I was severely depressed. So, and then, quite often, I would either collapse and fall asleep for like 20-something 20, 20 hours, or I would stay in the kitchen, pull my computer into the kitchen, sit down there with my cigs and with coffee, and I would sit and work on the Overcome album. And I started, the first track was called The Beast, 
uh, and it's uh, it's further on in the album. It's not it's not the first track. And um, Tower Call. The first bit of lyrics that I've written was written for the Beast for that track, and then the other one was uh, Tower Call. And then Tower Call was such a long track. It still is, you know, in its um, final form. It's a very long track. And um, I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what am I gonna say. I knew that I have to overcome this somehow. I didn't know how I'm gonna pull this off. But I felt a lot of things, and I needed to say it somehow. So, instead of using straightforward language or laying out a clear-cut story, instead of that, um, when I was writing Tower Call, I started with the lyrics. I started with the lyrics. Then there was a little theme that popped in my that popped in my head—a very slow-running theme. And um, I was just writing out the way I felt about where did I come from. I'll explain. Not in a sense of where did I physically come from, but almost... It felt like I'm describing either a dream or like an, archi like an archetype of sorts. The place where I come from, it, uh, it felt as if I'm describing my very, very roots way back when I was very little. So I was operating in metaphors and in feelings or memories of feelings and memories of sensations. And I was then turning that, converting that into metaphors. And um, it's a dreamlike, it's a dreamlike way of saying things. It's hard to describe in precise language. It's just a flow of unconsciousness, rather. And perhaps I was describing... Um, you could analyze the lyrics and you can, you know, draw your own conclusions. You could see that as a metaphor for my childhood or for how did my psyche evolve or what did I escape or what did I fear when I was very little and I didn't understand anything. And it's comprised of dreams and memories, intertwined, all of it. And it's also a metaphor for my life, because the way I felt is that I was caged, that I was up above, high above, like in a tower. And my existence was like that of a person who's sitting in a very, 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 very tall tower. And there is that one dark room on the top of the tower, and you sit there, and there are just a few windows, and you don't see them. You don't see them. You feel that the windows are there because you can feel the cold, chilling, cold draft that creeps in. You can feel it, and you're terrified because you don't know how do you get here. You don't know where's the way out. You know that it's very high above the ground. So, it's almost like you feel like you're not from the ground, you were put here from above. You see what I'm saying? It's a very... it's claustrophobic, it's dark, it's chilling, it's blood... blood chilling, you could say. And it's very secluded. It's a very tight space, it's very secluded. And you didn't choose to be here. You... 
got here somehow, someone put you here, and now you're supposed to find a way to get out of here, and you don't know what's outside, but you're afraid. So this metaphor with a tower and sitting on top of that tower in a little small room, like a chamber, in complete darkness, in absolute darkness, with no sound, no sounds at all, you don't even hear the wind, you don't hear anything, it's just dead silence and dead darkness, it's all dead, it's all dark and black. Um, this is where I started, and then as the lyrics progress, as you know, Tower Call, this song, as it um, opens up and escalates, you can see that it, the entirety of Overcome is written in complex metaphors. And uh, a lot of them are hard to explain from, from a rational standpoint, because they are irrational. A lot of it is irrational. A lot of it is dreams, feelings, sensations, allegories, allusions to. That's what, what Overcome is mostly made of. And uh, Tower Call opens this album exactly with a whole variety of like a dream story, you could say, a dream story that described myself and where did I come from. So, um, now that I've laid out a little bit of, you know, sort of like an intro to the entire album and uh, to Tower Call, let's go through the lyrics. And the lyrics, there's plenty to unpack here. So, here we go. The first verse, or whatever, it's hard to tell where there is a verse, it's like a whole mass of text that comes in, and as I said, um, perhaps don't even try to understand it on a rational level. Uh, try to just feel out the lyrics, and I'll try to explain some of it, what, what alludes to what. And you will get it. So it goes like this. It seems that I was recollected by someone I always knew. I'm brought to life, and I'm dragged through my thoughts that are few. Their dark enchantment rises from the deep of my mind. Tides of fear tell me somehow that there will be no light. Inspiration and horror form a rightly mix. They whiten my lips. They reduce my heart with an orgasmic taste of sticks. Sticks with a, with a capital S, so it's river sticks. They diffuse my soul with a sweet spasm of sense. Sure, I'll blow up and scatter like thousands of stars in eternity's dance. So, you see, it's a whole variety of things, and now, now that I've laid out to you the concept of being up in a tower in a little chamber uh, in complete darkness, now you sort of feel, I'm giving you the, the feel part of it, what did it feel like, and uh, there's a few notes here, so these opening lines, Lines. It seems that I was recollected by someone I always knew. I'm brought to life and I'm dragged through my thoughts that are few. This refers to birth, like when I was born. You can't remember that, and nobody probably remembers that, but just a feeling of when did my consciousness awaken? What darkness was preceded that awakening? And when did I realize myself in the world? So... Uh, these opening lines refer to the bottom inner self. It's like the deep, deep archetype, the deep uh, self that is not, that is primal, that is at the very, very bottom of the unconsciousness. One might think of it as the ancestral DNA, 
Perhaps, God only knows. It's an old self hidden in one's biology, in one's bones, in the very blood. So you see what that refers to. Then this line, um, Tides of fear tell me somehow that there will be no light. This terror of being left alone and um, being alone in the dark. As a kid, I was terrified of that because my parents sometimes weren't around and I was just it was just me and the darkness. And I've seen dreams since I was a little kid and I remembered them and I remembered nightmares that I've seen. And nobody would come and save me. The sense of that nobody's going to come and save me, that was terrifying to me as a little child. So, Tides of Fear tell me somehow that there will be no light. Inspiration and horror form a rattling mix. They whiten my lips. Yeah, inspiration. Inspiration that comes out of necessity, that comes from the urge to break free. And at the same time, the horror. And together, these two elements, they are like a rattling mix. Like an explosive mix, you could say. They whiten my lips. They reduce my heart with an orgasmic taste of sticks. So this refers, sticks refers to death, of course. So, orgasmic taste of sticks is a reference to my oldest memorized nightmare from when I was maybe four years old. In that dream, I've encountered an endless black serpent that crawled into the room, filled the entire floor with itself, then crawled under my blanket, curled around my feet and body, and then would start to choke me to death. It was a recurring dream that I've experienced several times throughout my life. Every time, in the very end, when the serpent's head was right next to mine, I was ready to die. I was terrified, paralyzed, but simultaneously excited in a sexual way. So, this is what these lines refer to. So, it's a wild mix of horror, sexual arousal, um, inspiration, and the realization that I need to break th free out of here, the urge for freedom, the urge for breaking out of this darkness, of this primordial darkness, you could say. And um, then we go to the next verse. And all of this, all of this, uh, in the beginning of the song, if you listen to the song, it's all sort of wrapped, but it's not rap music at all. It's rather like it's just declared like a poem, like a weird poem. Uh, or like a chant, and then, then there is some grit, and then it becomes a growl, a scream, a low scream, uh, and it becomes sort of slipknotish, you could say. So, next verse. I get sicker the more I make an effort. It looks like something familiar, like something I can't abort. Still blind, I find I'm so fucking lonely at such a towering height. Remember I told you about the tower? There's no one to fight with, there's nowhere to hide. So it sort of makes you anxious when at least you can clearly see who is the enemy and who you need to get through. Or if, if there is someone who stands in your way, you know that you have to get through that and then you are free. But when you do not have that and it's all it is is just this blanket of darkness that wraps you around, it's like nothing. There's no one to fight with. There's nowhere to hide. And at the same time, you can't hide anywhere. My internal instinct instinct tells me tis impossible to keep cool on the verge of madness and genius. Damn. Impending doom surrounds me thicker each instant. 
like it's extended through centuries, like I will never resist it. So, this is existential, as you can, as you may understand. This, uh, the inner realization of the self, when you realize yourself as a, as a conscious creature, as a conscious human being, as a human to begin with, your consciousness awakens and you start to realize things and um, your mind is working and you don't know because, you know, if you're someone like me who sees uh, dreams and nightmares throughout your life all the time and when you're a little kid sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between objective reality and uh, a nightmare a dream because dreams are so if they're so vivid then sometimes you're lost you're sort of lost you don't know and you're not you wouldn't talk to anybody about this because you you don't know if you are a genius sort of or you're just crazy and then you learn a little bit about what is normal and what is not normal you know, as you start to grow up and you start to get a handle on reality a little bit and you start thinking, am I okay or am I not okay? That's what runs through your mind, right? So impending doom surrounds me thicker each instant like it's extended through centuries like I will never resist it. So there is this existential terror and fear of death, I'm guessing, because this was these lines were pulled from my memory, from the feeling of having a memory about my past, about the, I don't know, my earliest, earliest uh, times. Then next verse. My disguise is catalyzed. I struggle through a paralysis. I must surpass, though my eyes are still insensible like solid glass. I'll win this fatal fight or will be dissolved in tears by this plight. So I hold on to life with all of my might. So, my disguise is catalyzed, it's almost like since my very early days I felt like I'm pretending, like I'm almost like I'm wearing my skin as a disguise. And people don't know, my parents don't know who I am, my, my parents can't see through my skin, they can't see into me, they don't know what do I think. And they never, they never paid attention. So I felt like I'm wearing my skin and I'm pretending to be someone for them, and I'm pretending to be someone for everybody else, whatever whatever people expect of me. That's what it was. And it's a very paralyzing feeling inside because you don't know if everybody's like that or is, it, or is it just you and you're doing something wrong. And then it says, I must surpass, though my eyes are still insensible like solid glass. It's almost like you're watching the world through a thick glass. Almost like Alice looking into the mirror and through the looking glass. Because at that time, probably what I'm describing right here is um, it's probably roughly four or five years old. I knew inside that I am a girl. I've associated myself with Alice. I knew that I'm just like Alice. And just like Alice, I'm living in some strange wonderland because I see dreams and I'm not telling anybody about these dreams. And my parents don't seem to be concerned and they don't ask me and I can't talk to them because my dad is not paying attention and my dad doesn't care and he tells me that all of that is just you know whatever whenever when I tried to tell him something he told me that it's all basically just junk and uh, I'm just imagining things that it can't be but I knew that it can be because 
I've experienced it and because my dreams were so vivid. Just because my dad didn't have dreams didn't mean there are no dreams. Now, apparently, when I was a little kid, I did believe in things. I did believe in magic. I did believe that... Uh, I did believe that there was a world behind the looking glass just like Alice. And as I was listening to Alice in Wonderland, I was thinking that maybe if I just, you know, pronounced the right words, or if I just found out the real spell, some sort of, you know, magic spell or whatever, I could get into the looking glass. And in my mind, I also believed that the things that happened to me in my dreams, that they were real. I didn't question that. I didn't... The way I saw it, I saw it as two worlds. The dream world, and that to me wasn't an unreal world, it was just an extension of the awake world. But both of them were real, the awake world and the dream world. So that's how I, how I operated. And um, I felt sometimes that I was watching the awake world through eyes that are almost like insensible, like solid glass. Like I'm looking at the world, at the awake world, at the world of my parents through a thick layer of glass. And they don't hear me. They don't understand me. And I have no one to talk to about it. And then there's the next verse, and it goes, Don't want to fall asleep and turn into one of the sta statues. Oh gosh, my English back then. Into one of those statues. Statues. That crackle in the gloom, inside and around, not yet bound. Their morbid silhouettes and shadows attempt to merge with me, so we clash while I try to dash away, away from their progeny. Holy cow. So, um, first of all, back in 2006 when I was writing these lyrics, my English was sort of clanky, because I didn't have enough practice, I didn't have anybody to talk to, really, back in 2006, so forgive me, these old lyrics that were written back then, they are sort of crooked, you could say. So this verse, uh, here's what it refers to. As a little kid, I was terrified with the idea of turning into stone and being stuck forever. I've been also horrified with the idea that the creatures from my nightmares could take control of me and make me do their bidding. Essentially, I just didn't want to become a monster. Because I've seen things in my dreams, in my nightmares, I did not want those monsters to affect me, to take over me and to rule over me. And I was horrified with the idea that what if one of them could turn me into stone and I wouldn't be able to move anymore and I wouldn't be able to fly. I fly in my dreams, I still fly in my dreams occasionally. Um, so this um, idea of paralysis, idea of being immobilized, the idea of being turned into stone, you know, in... Um, Literally and uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, that was a horrifying idea to me. Then there's the next verse. You fucking go away. Don't delay. I will not pray for mercy. Instead, I'll fight my way forward. I don't want to bear this venom in me. I'll never give birth to victims. You'll see. Perhaps someone prepares me a convoy, some pain to annoy me. A countdown to extinction, an attempt of a complete destroy. It's a weird way to write it, by the way. An attempt of a complete of a complete destruction, I guess. 
But what I know, and know full well, is that I'm not born for being enslaved. I'm no kind of blow-up doll. Oh my god, my blood is overflown by flame. It feels like sun itself diluted me, then drove me sane again. A hurricane now spreads in me and inflames my brain. My eyes are wide open from now on. From now on, I'm not the same. So, this whole verse basically describes the idea of coming into consciousness and becoming self-aware, and it sort of operates on two levels. On one level, it operates as far as me being a kid, becoming myself and coming to grips with myself. Um, and on another level, it also refers to exactly 2006, um, and me describing how did I come to realize that I have to accept myself and I have to move forward or I will have no life. And um, you fucking go away, don't delay, I will not pray for mercy, instead I'll fight my way forward. This refers to my father because my father was in the way. My father didn't love me. My father didn't like me. Exactly for the reasons, you know, because I was a girl. Because I behaved like a girl all of my childhood. He taunted me for that. He made fun of me. I looked like a girl. I always looked like a girl. And uh, he was making fun of me. And uh, he was punishing me for behaving like a girl when I was little. And uh, I grew up like that. And so in 2006, he was still, he was even more vicious in his attacks, and uh, I was devastated, and my mom was dying, so it was a horrible time. So, these these lines, you fucking go away, don't delay, I will not pray for mercy, instead I'll fight my way forward. This is like me, like I said in the beginning, throwing the banner all across the, ba all across the battlefield and saying like, no, I have to get there, over there, I gotta get my life, my way, as myself, one way or another, and I'm gonna do it. Venom is used as a metaphor for fear. Giving birth to victims is like seeing all the fears impregnate me and potentially make it possible for me to give birth to multiple me's, which could be totally absorbed in being tortured victims, in becoming tortured victims. The whole metaphor is like another way to describe how fear can shatter oneself into bits and pieces that are helpless, which are helpless and endlessly terrified on their own. So you see, um, there is the idea of being impregnated by a monster, something that I was terrified of, which is a, you could say, a pretty weird thing, a weird fear for a kid to have, but I had that underlying fear inside of me. When I said that as a little kid, I was terrified with the idea that the monsters that I see in my nightmares, that they will take over me. The way I felt about it is I felt... I didn't know the word impregnate. I didn't know how all of that worked. But I was scared. I was really, really horribly uh, scared with the idea that one of these monsters will get into me and then I will become a multitude of monsters, or I will birth monsters, or monsters will start getting out of me. That's what I was terrified with. So, then there is the, uh, the next little portion. Uh, 
Uh, but what I know and know full well is that I'm not, not born for being to be, that would be the proper way to write it, not born to be enslaved. I'm no kind of blow-up doll. Oh my god, my blood is overflowing overflown by flame. It feels like sun itself deluded me but drove me sane again. This is the moment of realization, alright? Realization and acceptance. Because when you see the truth, when you realize that there's no other way, that the only way forward is for you to be yourself, and that's what I've realized at some point, regardless of staving that off, that moment of realization, all of my childhood, I was you know, playing for the world, I was pretending to be a boy, I was pretending to be a son for my mom. I didn't show my true face, and then, well, here we are. A hurricane now spreads in me and inflames my brain. My eyes are wide open. From now on, I'm not the same. This refers to, exactly, to that realization, and at some point to my determination to proceed forward with my life as myself, regardless of who says what, of who thinks what, whatever. Uh, now, then there is the next section of the song, and mind you, this is a very long song, so it's probably going to be a long episode. It goes, For me, it happened long ago. It's cold to bear and hard to know. My inside lies somewhere to where I go. So you see, again, it refers back to the idea. The process of self-realization that started way back in childhood took years to come to fruition. In the earlier, darker years, it felt like there is a destination, a place in space and time, inside, that needs to be reached. So basically, it's like <laughs> finally going to yourself, digging yourself from underneath the rubble of, of your childhood. Going down to myself and reaching out to that little kid hidden inside of me, that little Alice inside of me, who was terrified by the monsters, who was horrified with the idea that she could get impregnated by these monsters, and that she would birth monsters, that she would become a monster. So in 2006, that was me pushing away all the rubble and um, of uh, traumatic events and uh, of everything that happened in my life, and digging back all the way to that little Alice inside of me, who needed help. A secret place that's never to be shown, right, because nobody ever seen Alice, except me, because I knew that Alice is part of me, that is deep, deep inside of me. No one can feel, no one can see the edge of my reality, so I'll exist, though you will disagree, because I realize I'm locked somewhere above the world, in a tower. And then it's tower, tower. No one can feel, no one can see. So. The first character I could relate to as a little kid was Alice in Wonderland and then Alice through the looking glass. Knowing deep down at a very young age that I am a girl who lives in a strange reality in which I am locked up in a boy's body felt like living behind the looking glass. It felt just as surreal. And I've started out, you know, describing the tower, the idea of it. It was almost like being locked up somewhere very, very high above the ground and having no escape and not knowing where am I supposed to go, and how am I supposed to get out of here, and why am I even here? This, you know, this eternal question, why? Why me? Why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? That was another question that was bothering me since I was there a little, because I didn't understand. 
I didn't understand why other kids were normal. I didn't understand why uh, boys were like boys and girls were like girls, and I was hell knows what. I was trying to pretend to be a boy, knowing that I'm just like the girls. Then the song goes on and it says, I'm alive now, there's no one to behead me, nothing to stop me. I'm alive, I'm alive now, I'd better sift through the shit than die like a coward. So this is the moment when I knew, in 2006, that I'm gonna push all the way to the end. And I'm gonna push very hard and nothing and nobody's gonna stop me because either I'm going to live or I'm gonna die. It's one of those two and there is no third way. Then the song goes, Oh my god, I feel bewitched because now I can feel the cold draft real my sanity. It makes me convulsively sniff the air around and hurry because I can be found. So I run somewhere and I try not to blur. It's a very strange way of going about things, you see? This, this entire album is very strange. Nowadays when I'm writing songs, I'm more direct in my metaphors and more sort of... Uh, I make them more obvious. But this language, this is a little different. So, uh, I feel bewitched because now I can feel the cold draft reel my sanity. A metaphorical description of the cold, hard reality of the world and trying to find a place in the world as a kid. This um, cold draft, that is the, actually, the, um, as, as I said, the cold, hard reality of the world. And convulsively sniff the air around me and hurry because I can be found. This is anxiety. It was a major issue that plagued me in elementary school. That's precisely what it is. Convulsively sniffing the air around me and being in a hurry uh, and being absolutely paranoid about somebody finding out who I really am. Because I feared that my classmates, they will find out that I'm a girl. That the teachers would find out my real self, that I'm a girl. And when someone would take me for a girl, for a girl, which they did, I was absolutely horrified because I feared that they would tell my parents and my, my dad would punish me. So I, t I tried to keep it together. I tried, to, I tried so hard to pretend that I'm a boy. I did all the best I could. Okay, then it goes on. There's a scent of eternity that hangs in the air so sturdily, as enormous as God, as attractive as blood. That's the deal. I came from above to live on the earth. I can't be a serf, because I escaped the tower. So, as a little kid, I believed in magic. I believed in higher powers. I believed in Merlin and Queen Mab and in Jesus and in Santa Claus and... Um, other creatures, and uh, I thought that all of them are sort of like in the same pantheon, you could say. I believed in Greek heroes and in Irish he heroes. I believed that uh, Cahulin, that he lives in a different realm, but he is watching over me, maybe. I hoped that maybe I could find him and he would watch over me. I believed that Robin, Robin Hood still oversees the Sherwood Forest, you know. Well, I mean, that was my perception. And of course I believed that Marilyn hopefully became friends with Jesus Christ and that they are, well, that they know some very good magic and they will help me if I, if I just ask. That's what I believed. Um, so, and I, I also believed that I came from above because as a kid I had this understanding that 
My body, my physical body, is not exactly all of me. I believed that there is some other essence which is at the very core of everything, and that is the real me. And that real me is Alice. And that real me was locked up in that tower. And that I got into that tower from above. Not from the earth, not from below, but from above, somehow. Why is difficult to explain, and I don't even know why did I believe that. So, then it says, tower, tower, because I escaped the tower. Then the lyrics go on. Now my flesh makes me burdened. I feel my past lives. They now at my soul. They fiercely devour me with their every flaw. Each of them is like a claw that's trying to pull me under. So, hitting puberty while being a, while being a kid and not even knowing you know, the word trans or anything like that. Well, being a kid and inside internally being a girl. Uh, but it was an excruciating experience. It literally felt like the very flesh and bones, the body turned on me and there is nothing I can do about it. It's like wearing a burden every day and feeling its weight. That's what it felt like. Because when I was a very little kid, I believed that I'm just like my cousin sister. I believe like I'm just I believed that I'm going to become like my mom. My mom was a very beautiful woman. I believed that I'm going to become just like my Aunt Rita. And um, I knew very well, you know, the anatomical differences between men and women, you know, between males and females. So, because I've seen naked bodies as a very little kid. And I was playing with my cousin's sister. And uh, I believed, before I went to school, I believed that at some point I will be just like normal women I will just you know get there and something will happen and uh, now everything's gonna straighten itself out and then I went to school and I started to realize you know when the reality started to settle in I started to realize that it's not gonna happen and that there is actually no magic and that it, I'm in a very strange place and I'm sort of trapped and as I was watching my peers the girls in my class uh, in my class develop and me developing into a boy, I was absolutely terrified with that because I felt that I'm left behind. I felt that something is just, I'm wearing someone else's flesh. It's not my flesh. Something is wrong and I don't know how to fix it and I don't know what's wrong with me. So I was just pretending to play along because what else could I do? Nothing, obviously nothing. And my flesh felt like it was burdened, like it was burdened. Then the lyrics go on. I face my past and fail to turn backward. Each life seems the last, I guess, seems to be the last, under death's, under death's showers. Oh god, my English from 2006 is, oh, crazy. And you get the meaning though. I face my past. I was facing 2006, I was looking back at my past and I was facing what I what I am, what am I made of, but I didn't want to turn backwards and I didn't want to um, back off. This time I wanted to accept who I was all the time, what I was all the, all the while, to accept that and, and to go forward. Uh, and then there is some more lyrics. Fire and ice torment my heart, though I seem free and torn apart. There's something that I've surely got that I had neither owned nor felt before in my core. 
Thus condemned to find my path, I'm overwhelmed by holy wrath, for still I can't forget the clap that overtook me when I had a fall with a tower call. So, uh, the fire is the passion, the drive for change, the ice is the paralyzing fear. Fire and ice torment my heart, though I seem free and torn apart. Uh, given that my family was strongly unaccepting of my natural female self inside, it was only natural that I felt divided between the drive for life and change and the fear of rejection and further mental and physical abuse which, uh, which any uh, change could ensue. So yeah, it um, wasn't it wasn't a very pleasant place to be in. There's something that I've surely got that I had neither owned nor felt before in my core. The realization of that there is no turning back, no unseeing the truth, no unknowing oneself once the door flings open and one can have a glimpse of what they really are. So, once you see the truth, once you, once it clicks together and you suddenly realize that you don't have a choice, actually, the only choice that you have is are you going to live, like really live, which means accepting yourself, being yourself, for real, honestly, or you're gonna die, because what kind of life is that if it's not even you? What kind of life is that if you're living someone else's life or trying to pretend to be someone else? That's not your life. And what sense does it make? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that's what it refers to. And uh, thus condemned to find my path, I'm overwhelmed by holy wrath. So finding oneself can be both liberating and enraging at the same time. But the holy wrath refers to the very first seeds of self-awareness and the growing realization that neither the family nor the state is on my side, that the very entities that are supposed to be protective of me as a child aren't out there to do that, instead they are out there to make me into their slave. That was that realization at some point, that the entities that uh, were allegedly supposed to be protective, that were allegedly supposed to be uh, on my side and to you know, keep me out of trouble, that they are not there for that, that they are there to enslave me, and that I can, you know, if I just do their beating all the time, I'll end up being a slave. And somehow, I had this natural urge, since I was a little kid, not to be stuck, because, as I said, like with those statues, I didn't want to become one. I was horrified with the idea that I would become a statue like that and I couldn't move and I couldn't get away and I couldn't escape and I couldn't go where I need and I couldn't fly. I needed to fly, I needed to be free, absolutely free. Like the wind, like the flames. So then there's the next piece of lyrics that says, I wish I could breathe a bit lighter, but the matters at hand make me tighter. I feel I am wounded forever, left to bleed here forever and ever. There's a desert around, and a desert inside. The wolves are here, I can feel their hungry first bite. What the hell's going on, the breath of death is on my skin. A blast of wind tells me stand up and win. This section describes precisely the place where I've been in 2006. Starvation, basically, well, not eating at all. Depression, were like, they were like wolves biting at me and dragging me towards death. I was losing my willpower. I was I was losing any motivation at all to wake up, to get up and do something. 
it was extremely difficult. The only thing that kept me going was music. It was like a bright shining path and uh, I kept writing music. I kept singing. Those were the only things that I really felt like doing. Everything else was gone. Mom was looking into death's face and I was looking into death's face too. So the wolves is a metaphor, obviously. And then it goes, because I, I came from above to live on the earth. I can't be a surf, for I escaped the tower. So then there is this little bit of, you know, a pride thing going on inside here. Like, well, I have managed to escape the tower. I have this little stubborn Alice inside of me that always fought back and always found a way to weasel her way out, you know, from, from the claws of all those monsters and out of those scary scary, insane dreams. Somehow that Alice inside of me, that little girl inside of me, managed to escape all of that and stay alive. So, you can see, it connects, it clicks together. So, hence, this hook, right? Tower the tower. Then, again, it's all metaphors, by the way. It's all metaphors, metaphors, metaphors. So, think for yourself, basically. I can't explain every single metaphor. Then there is this verse. On my left lies the swamp of sorrow, and on my right the abyss of no tomorrow. The wind of doubt is blowing at my back. The only way is before me. I can't wag. So, around the age of 10, I've been exposed by my father to the Holy Bible and to a book called The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bennion. Gosh, I remember this book since I was a little kid. The language used to describe one's life as a path surrounded by a rather harsh and dangerous landscape is a reference to that book. So, what I'm saying in this, uh, in this little four-liner, I think you, you get it. It's just in the, in the vibe of uh, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. That's right here. It refers directly to that book. Then there's the hook again, I, I came from above to live on the earth, I can't be a serf, for I escaped the tower. There's also this understanding, you know, just like with Christian in uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, there's also this understanding that I cannot be tamed, that I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave. I'm free. Just by, by definition. I was born free, so I can't be enslaved. I can't be captured by those monsters, and I cannot become one of those monsters. And as long as I don't say yes to them, I will not become one. And then the song ends with this last closing section that says, I see claws stretch, I see their glimmer, they crave my flesh and soul for dinner. On my left lies the swamp of sorrow, and on my right the abyss of no tomorrow. My back is bent by the wind of doubt, so I struggle forward and go all out. This is precisely the description of where I've been in 2006, how did I feel about things, and how narrow my path was. The swamp of sorrow to one, on one hand, and on the right the abyss of no tomorrow, because yeah, I was basically ready to die. My back is bent by the wind of doubt, yeah, I was doubting everything, I was not so sure, and I didn't know what lies ahead, absolutely. So I struggled forward and go all out. That was the only path forward, to go all out and just... whatever. 
So, um, this turned out to be a very long section. So, um, now since I've laid out more or less the general idea of the album and uh, the lyrical content of Tower Call, let's move on to the next section, shall we? Here we go with the music analysis of this piece. It starts out uh, in the key of C minor, and as far as I remember, it ends in the key of C minor too. And um, in the very beginning, the opening of the track is basically some weird effects and creepy stuff going on there, which sort of symbolizes, um, as I described previously, right, being up above, very high in a tower, all alone in a chamber, in the dark with that cold breeze seething through the cracks in the walls, perhaps through windows or something like that, the kind of windows that you don't see. And then there is just a, some sort of synthetic sound that goes like this. It sort of wobbles. And that wobbling sound just continues. Then there is um, a little bit sort of like a break. It stops. And then there is a, a lonely, very lonely theme, which, uh, for the sake of convenience, let's call it the tower theme. Because this theme will appear throughout the album in various shapes and forms. It will appear as a uh, late, mo late, late motive throughout the entire album and throughout this, um, this particular piece, too. So it goes like this. sad, very strange melody. Uh, we are in um, some sort of Phrygian harmonic C minor, basically. So it's a C, a D flat, then an A flat. You see what a wide leap this is. And then down to a B flat, uh, to a B, to a clean B. Then, then we're starting with an E flat. E flat, F, B, a clean B. And then there is a bass line that kicks in, and uh, this is where the vocals kick in, and I'm uh, sort of declaring the lyrics like a poem, like some sort of crazy, dark, metaphoric, um, weird sort of poem with occasional rhymes, alright? So here's, here's what it sounds like, this sequence underneath.
and the bass apparently plays uh, plays eighth notes as far as I remember. What's happening here? Well, we got a C minor, it starts with a C minor, obviously. Then the melody goes into a D flat, but the bass goes into an E flat. So, which is a strange combo, right? Then we have these additional flavors. As I said, it's a peculiar Phrygian harmonic C minor. It's not completely a C minor, really. So then we have an F flat, which was colloquially referred to as an E, uh, a clean E. And then a B major. The bass goes into a B, so the bass goes... It's a C, E flat, E, E major, uh, E major plus 7, for the sake of simplicity, then B major, then C minor again, B major, then again E major plus 7, E major, not E flat, E major. Then B major, plus 7. You see what makes it a plus 7, right? And it repeats itself. So it builds up and it builds up and it builds up this whole long section with plenty of rapping slash declaring the lyrics goes on and on and then there is like a cliff and all of it falls apart and then there is a rapid succession of riffing. Back then I didn't play guitar, I didn't have one. So instead I had to replace the guitars, you know, I, I wanted something slipknotish there, I wanted something, you know, death metalish down there. So, it's basically, I'm not going to replicate exactly what notes are there. I've never played this, um, this whole album on piano, so I can only guess. But... But, I can safely tell you that it definitely uses uh, phrases like this. A piece of scale like this. So it would be a C, a D flat, an E flat, an F flat.
And uh, on top of this riff, almost slipknotish as I said, uh, there is, uh, we are going into actually a death metal styled hardcore slash whatever, uh, screaming slash rapping whatever with these lyrics for me it happened long ago, it's called to bear and hard to know, my inside lies somewhere to where I go. A secret place that's never to be shown. No one can feel, no one can see the edge of my reality. So I'll exist, though you will disagree, because I realize I'm locked somewhere above the world in a. And then it goes into that. This riff continues the logical development of that riff. And by the way, the riffs are changing all the time. That's why I'm not going to sit down and dissect every single bend and twist of that riff. I'd have to write out charts, you know, for you guys. For those of you who really want to dig deep into what's going on there, tell me. I will have to, you know, print out some charts for you, for y'alls. Because otherwise, I can sit and talk about one song for a whole week, seven days, you know, and it still won't cover it. Because these pieces on this Overcome album, they're enormous. Compared to a normal album, this is like so densely packed that I'm just going to basically skim through the most important elements of every composition to lay it out to you, you know, very basic analysis, and um, so you'll get the idea of what's going on. So, These are like the... This is gonna be a recurring theme because this tower, you see it goes upwards half a tone. Exactly because it is so high, so it should be high, and musically it is made high too. I'm alive now. There is no one to behead me, nothing to stop me. I'm alive now. I better sit through the shit and die like a coward. So there is like... it. it and it, back in the day, when this particular song, Tower Call, was the vocals were recorded back in 2006. So when you hear these vocals, that's me from um, 15 years ago, singing this vocal part. And since then, I never sang it again. I recorded it. Back then, when I was writing it, I was singing it all the time. And then I recorded it, and then that's it. So, uh, and my, my vocal tone has changed since then. But anyways... That was being recorded in one track, so I literally sang. I'm alive now. There is no one to be had me. Nothing is stopped by. I'm alive now. I better, I better shift to the shit and die like a coward. So I was going and doing all of those things and leaping. You know, I'm, I'm not warmed up, warmed up right now. Uh, so I'm not going to like scream, uh, like full blown screams. But you get the idea. So I was singing up there. I'm alive now, there is no one to be happy now, there is no uh, And then leaping up again, I'm alive now, I'd, I better sit through the shit and die like a coward. And then, oh, and then going on to the next part. That's how I was recording these uh, things back then. Nowadays I wouldn't have done that because it's just, uh, uh, given that nowadays I'm using sort of like a triple method, I'm recording the same part thrice to make a thicker vocal, to have some uh, some additional layers 
of vocals to mix and to uh, to, to get just a better quality mix. Uh, nowadays I'm recording th three singing the same thing three times basically. Back then I was singing just once so that was sustainable more or less. I could just you know sort of start in the beginning of the song and just run all the way to the end of the song and record it, you know. But nowadays it would have been insane because singing singing that same song with all of its twists and you know whatever on record three times exactly the same that's close to impossible it's too difficult and it would vocally just wear me out with all the you know all the amounts of screaming growling and clean high-pitched singing that's way too much of a strain so I have to roll that back so nowadays I would record that on different vocal tracks I would scream on one track you know those lines and then on, on another track I would sing the clean part but back then, I was doing that all in one, um, in one great move. So, again, once again, there is a whole multitude of crooked um, riff twists and bends and whatever, and it all basically um, walks around whatever was already introduced, you know, in this um, crooked harmonic Phrygian slash additional low fourth uh, C minor. That's what happens there. There are phrases like this. Oh my God, I because now I can feel. Ah, without any and riffing. The riffing is going on underneath all of this. It's like a very chaotic, moving, fast-paced, uh, blistering kind of thing. And the vocal hovers over that almost like it floats and flies. Almost like we're falling off of that tower and uh, diving into like a deep valley or whatever. And Bob also sniffed the hair round and hairy cause I Cause I can be found, can be found, so I run somewhere, and I try, try not to bear, and I try, try not to bear. There's a set, set of eternity that hangs in the air so sturdily as enormous as God, as attractive as blood. So, uh, here's another bit like this. There are uh, changing time signatures. That's also another thing that happens. It's all incredibly fast-paced. So, I'm not going to play it. Uh, we're still in C minor. We're still in C minor. It's a very 
it's like a wild blend of, you know, Slipknot heavy kind of aggressive riffing uh, with Dream Theater-esque um, melodic lines and very challenging, technically very challenging vocal lines to sing. Then there is something that sounds like it might be a hook. That's the deal. I came from above to live on the earth. I can be a surf. Cause I escaped the tower. And then it goes back into Again, with those all that riffing. So, this part that I said sounds almost like a little bit of a hook, finally, in a conventional sense. Uh, I will simplify the uh, to the basic chords what might be happening there, because it's all embellished with crazy riffing, and uh, I'll try to summarize. Next That's approximately what's going on there. Essentially, the uh, the chord progression is pretty damn simple. It's a C minor, F minor, uh, minus seven, nine. Again, C minor, then uh, A flat um, major plus seven, mage, right? Again, C minor, then again, F minor minus seven, nine, A flat major plus seven, and then a B mage, or a B, uh, B major plus seven. Then there is a continuation. Again, we're running into that next. There is a, uh, a, a sequence of riffs, and they're all sort of competing for the place under the sun. That's how it is. And uh, those riffs and those aggressively raging lines, those bass lines and uh, quote-unquote electronic guitar lines, they are like the monsters. They are like these uh, nightmare creatures that are trying to rip me apart. That's why they are there. And... Um, it's basically like I was painting music, literally, through rhythm, through uh, through uh, texture, through tone, through all of those things. Now my flesh makes me burdened, I feel my past lives, they now, at my, at my, my soul, they fiercely devour for me, with their every flow, And it, again, this this whole section. Now, uh, I'm not gonna scream right now. No. My flesh makes me burden. My, my flesh makes me burden. I. Am my 
That's pretty damn high. And then there is a return to the main theme again. There's a return to this tower theme again, as I said. Let's move on. And then we're moving to the next section. So then there is a little bit in between uh, bridge section that sounds almost atonal. It's not atonal, actually. It's a very calculated, bizarre, dream theaterish kind of progression and I'm not going to replicate it again because it's just way too complex. I'll have to sit there and dissect it, you know, for like a whole hour. But then we're getting to the next main theme and we land, we're in C minor and now all of a sudden we are in F sharp minor. So this section, Fire and Ice Torment My Heart, Though I Seem Free, I'm Torn Apart. This is yet another theme, another melody that will reappear later on the album. up a whole octave higher again. I'm not going to belt it right now, it's just insane. But it's a relatively simple section with, some, you know, a very serene, deeply sad melody. And here's how it goes. It's an F sharp minor. 
are headed into an inversion of B minor that is on the base of D. version of F sharp minor on the base of C sharp. And then it's an E major. C sharp major. <clears throat> and then we're back to F sharp minor. And again, we're getting into all these modulations and we're moving around and we're moving around. And it becomes again very active and very dense and very thick. And after that, we move into this uh, another sort of death metalish uh, styled section. I wish you could breathe a bit lighter, but the matters at hand make me tighter. And it's sort of again, there's a weird riff going on. Uh, in the bottom, it starts out sort of slowly and creepy, like a, like a crazy animal, like a beast that crawls out of the belly of the earth. And um, the vocals start first just almost amazing. Uh, they're almost amazed, right? I wish I could breathe a bit lighter, but the matters at hand make me tighter. I feel like wound I feel like I'm wounded forever, left to bleed here forever and ever. And then it escalates. There's a desert around, there's a desert inside. It's all modulation in this section. And it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. Uh, and it leads up back into C minor. Because I... It's again the same quasi hook, or well, that probably serves the purpose of a hook here in this song. And again, and um, there is a scream that goes the tower goes way way down there. On my left lie the swamp of sorrow, and on my right the abyss of no tomorrow. The wind of doubt is uh, is blowing at my back. The only ways before me I can't wag. Again, the repetition of the hook. Again, in the same key of C minor, we're back in C minor big time. Uh, they crave my flesh and soul for dinner on my left side the Swamp of Sarah. And this is basically the last this uh, riff that hammers the point home on this song. So, guys, see, I'm going to skim through every song like this because 
doing a very detailed analysis is just going to be extremely time-consuming and I don't even know how to structure it. Uh, I would have to spend, I don't know, three, four episodes talking about every song, which is going to stretch out for more than a year, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, this is going to be simplified, simplified, really, just the main uh, crucial points. So anyways, this is where I'm going to wrap up the musical analysis of Tower Call, the basic analysis, and uh, let's move on to the next section, shall we? So, as you can see, Tower Call is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, Overcome is an enormous album. I started working on it back in 2006 and um, then into 2007. And um, I've written some tracks, I've recorded some vocals back then, then there were other projects. And then I was working with clients and then I had my students. So, and life was getting in the way and I couldn't get back onto this enormous project until 2010. In 2010 I've attempted to continue and I've written some more songs and I put them there and I thought that at that point I thought, well, maybe I could release at least one part of that album, which I did and then I pulled it off, basically. And then, um, roughly speaking, in 2013 I've tried to revisit Overcome but I was on a different page and I couldn't go back there. And then, basically, in 2018, all the way into 2019, I've made it my top priority to finalize, finally, to finally finalize Overcome album, to, uh, basically, I wanted to just finish the work that I started at that point 13 years ago. I wasn't going to uh, play drums or guitars, even though I had a guitar at that point in 2019. I wanted to just finish it the way it was originally started. So, uh, in 2019, I was recording, uh, I don't remember, seven songs uh, were recorded in 2019, the vocals for them. So there is a body of songs that were recorded in 2006 with my old uh, voice, then approximately 10 or a dozen of, of songs which were recorded in uh, 2010 when I've made that second attempt to, f to finish the song. And then the last missing tracks, which weren't finished or didn't have lyrics written out, those songs were finalized in uh, 2019. So, um, it took me that long to put this enormous album together. And I sort of call it Super Album because it extends over the course of four hours, runtime, it has two main parts and it can be loosely broken down into three parts. It has two overtures, it just it's, it spans across so much time and um, the narrative is not consistent. It ma Mainly it is consistent, but it describes a lot of things and it jumps through time back and forth all the time, so sometimes without any context uh, it's difficult to understand what does that refer to? What does a given song um, refer to? What is it about? Like Parish, for example. 
And then Hero Torture. What is Hero Torture about? Uh, what is the Stone Shower about? The Stone Shower, by the way, was, for example, it's one of the last tracks on the Overcome album. It was started. Um, there was a sketch that I had that was just the beginning. It was written in 2007, early 2007. But the whole tale of it, the whole, I don't know, 90% of that song wasn't written at all. It just had the title, The Stone Shower. Um, and for 13 years, it didn't have any traction, didn't have any continuation until it was finished in 2019, when I finished all the music and um, wrote all the lyrics from scratch, basically in the vein of the Overcome album, so it's like 13 years later I was writing the lyrics for something that I started with that. So Overcome, um, every track that we're going to be talking about here is going to be a massive dive into a lot of things, because these tracks, these songs, they operate on a variety of levels, they are heavily packed with metaphors of all kinds, and um, a lot of them might seem very cryptic and obscure to a common listener, so I'm looking forward to dissecting this album and trying to explain whatever I can explain. On the other hand, I don't want to explain everything away because I would love for you guys to enjoy exploring this album and coming to your own conclusions and allowing your imagination to wander and uh, to find out new angles and um, perhaps relate in your own way to this music and uh, to this lyrics. So, with that being said, this is where I'm going to be wrapping up this episode. If you have not heard any of my music yet, I would uh, urge you to find me on basically any major streaming platform. Look for Catherine Corelli, Catherine with a C, Corelli with a C, like Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, Apple Music, uh, or even YouTube. And by the way, if you go to YouTube, you can also find my YouTube channel. And on that YouTube channel, I happen to have a Cat Talk series, which is a podcast uh, of its own. And on that podcast, I'm not talking about music. I'm also talking about other stuff. Well, occasionally I talk about music. So you can see some of that. You can also see some of my creative process and uh, some of my just, you know, casual behind-the-scenes kind of everyday uh, stuff. And that is in the Cat Vibes playlist. Please check it out. Uh, if you have any questions or if you have, like I said, if you want like a detailed uh, like charts of this, uh, of whatever I'm talking about, you can reach out to me through LadyCatherineCorelli at gmail.com. It is LadyCatherineCorelli at gmail.com. So if you want to have like a detailed conversation about what's going on there musically or you have any questions generally speaking on this podcast or you want to leave like an extensive comment or something like this, feel free to reach out to me through this email address and let's have a conversation. I'll be more than happy to to talk to you. Also, too, if you want to check out my merch, link is in the description to my Teespring merch store, but also I got a website called catcarelli.us and that's where you can find yourself some of my other products. Like, I got a sticker for $5, I got guitar picks, and I've got some soap. I'm also running a soap business. Uh, and the name of the brand is Southern Caracol, so you can find some of my soap, and if you want to get yourself some, just go to my website, catcarelli.us, and get yourself some soap and body lotions. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, guys, all the information uh, can be found in the description to this uh, episode and to any of my cartoons episodes. Thank you very much for hanging out with me. Uh, I appreciate you spending time with me. Thank you very much. I love you. 
and uh, you will hear me on the next episode.